permission to go and report to General Saxton without at once resigning my captaincy. Fortunately, it took but a few days in South Carolina to make it clear that all was right, and the return steamer took back a resignation of a Massachusetts commission. Thenceforth, my lot was cast altogether with the black troops, except when regiments or detachments of white soldiers were also under my command during the two years following. These details would not be worth mentioning, except as they show this fact, that I did not seek the command of colored troops, but it sought me. And this fact, again, is only important to my story for this reason, that, under these circumstances, I naturally viewed my new recruits rather as subjects for discipline than for philanthropy. I had been expecting a war for six years, ever since the Kansas Troubles, and my mind had dwelt on military matters more or less during all that time. The best Massachusetts regiments already exhibited a high standard of drill and discipline, and unless these men could be brought tolerably near that standard, the fact of their extreme blackness would afford me, even as a philanthropist, no satisfaction. Fortunately, I felt perfect confidence that they could be so trained, having happily known by experience the qualities of their race, and knowing also that they had home and household and freedom to fight for, besides that abstraction of the Union. Trouble might perhaps be expected from white officials, though this turned out far less than might have been feared. But there was no trouble to come from the men, I thought, and none ever came. On the other hand, it was a vast experiment of indirect philanthropy, and one on which the result of the war and the destiny of the Negro race might rest. And this was enough to tax all one's powers. I had been an abolitionist too long, and had known and loved John Brown too well, not to feel a thrill of joy at last on finding myself in the position where he only wished to be. In view of all this, it was clear that good discipline must come first. After that, of course, the men must be helped and elevated in all ways as much as possible. Of discipline there was great need, that is, of order and regular instruction. Some of the men had already been under fire, but they were very ignorant of drill and camp duty. The officers, being appointed from a dozen different states, and more than as many regiments, infantry, cavalry, artillery, and engineers, had all that diversity of methods which so confused our army in those early days. The first need, therefore, was of an unbroken interval of training. During this period, which fortunately lasted nearly two months, I rarely left the camp, and got occasional leisure moments for a fragmentary journal to send home, recording the many odd or novel aspects of the new experience. Camp life was a wonderfully strange sensation to almost all volunteer officers, and mine lay among eight hundred men suddenly transformed from slaves into soldiers, and representing a race affectionate, enthusiastic, grotesque, and dramatic beyond all others. Being such, they naturally gave material for description. There is nothing like a diary for freshness, at least so I think, and I shall keep to the diary through the days of camp life, 
and throw the later experience into another form. Indeed, that matter takes care of itself. Diaries and letter-writing stop when field service begins. I am under pretty heavy bonds to tell the truth, and only the truth, for those who look back to the newspaper correspondence of that period will see that this particular regiment lived for months in a glare of publicity such as tests any regiment severely, and certainly prevents all subsequent romancing in its historian. As the scene of the only effort on the Atlantic coast to arm the Negro, our camp attracted a continuous stream of visitors, military and civil. A battalion of black soldiers, a spectacle since so common, seemed then the most daring of innovations, and the whole demeanor of this particular regiment was watched with microscopic scrutiny by friends and foes. I felt sometimes as if we were a plant trying to take root, but constantly pulled up to see if we were growing. The slightest camp incidents sometimes came back to us, magnified and distorted, in letters of anxious inquiry from remote parts of the Union. It was no pleasant thing to live under such constant surveillance, but it guaranteed the honesty of any success, while fearfully multiplying the penalties had there been a failure. A single mutiny, such as had happened in the infancy of a hundred regiments, a single miniature bull run, a stampede of desertions, and it would have been all over with us. The party of distrust would have got the upper hand, and there might not have been, during the whole contest, another effort to arm the Negro. I may now proceed without farther preparation to the diary. Chapter 2 Camp Diary Camp Saxton, near Beaufort, South Carolina, November the 24th, 1862 Yesterday afternoon we were steaming over a summer sea, the deck level as a parlor floor, no land in sight, no sail, until at last appeared one lighthouse, said to be Cape Romaine, and then a line of trees and two distant vessels and nothing more. The sun set, a great illuminated bubble, submerged in one vast bank of rosy suffusion. It grew dark. After tea, all were on deck. The people sang hymns. Then the moon set, a moon two days old, a curved pencil of light reclining backwards on a radiant couch which seemed to rise from the waves to receive it. It sank slowly, and the last tip wavered and went down like the mast of a vessel of the skies. Towards morning the boat stopped, and when I came on deck, before six, the watchlights glittered on the land, the shiplights on the sea. Hilton Head lay on one side, the gunboats on the other. All that was raw and bare in the low buildings of the new settlement was softened into picturesqueness by the early light. Stars were still overhead, gulls wheeled and shrieked, and the broad river rippled duskily towards Beaufort. The shores were low and wooded, like any New England shore. There were a few gunboats, twenty schooners, and some steamers, among them the famous planter which Robert Small the slave presented to the nation. The river banks were soft and graceful, though low, and as we steamed up to Beaufort on the flood tide this morning, 
it seemed almost as fair as the smooth and lovely canals which Steadman traversed to meet his negro soldiers in Suriname. The air was cool as at home, yet the foliage seemed green. Glimpses of stiff tropical vegetation appeared along the banks with great clumps of shrubs whose pale seed vessels looked like tardy blossoms. Then we saw on a picturesque point an old plantation with stately Magnolia Avenue, decaying house, and tiny church amid the woods, reminding me of Virginia. Behind it stood a neat encampment of white tents, and there, said my companion, is your future regiment. Three miles farther brought us to the pretty town of Beaufort, with its stately houses amid southern foliage. Reporting to General Saxton, I had the luck to encounter a company of my destined command, marched in to be mustered into the United States service. They were unarmed, and all looked as thoroughly black as the most faithful philanthropist could desire. They did not seem to be so much as a mulatto among them. Their coloring suited me, all but the legs which were clad in a lively scarlet, as intolerable to my eyes as if I had been a turkey. I saw them mustered. General Saxton talked to them a little, in his direct manly way. They gave close attention, though their faces looked impenetrable. Then I conversed with some of them. The first to whom I spoke had been wounded in a small expedition after lumber, from which a party had just returned, and in which they had been under fire and had done very well. I said, pointing to his lame arm, Did you think that was more than you bargained for, my man? His